and off-market deals tend to be probably some of the biggest pay. Uh, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I, I believe that the, I, I work within what's called the 595 model where 5% of the people, 5% of the properties are in and on the market. 95% are not. Right. You want to be successful, you have to work the 95% of the market. Welcome to The Wayfinder Show with Adam Lacey and Luis Hernandez, where guests discuss the why and how of making changes in their life that led them down a greater, more authentic path or allowed them to level up in some area of their life. Our goal is to dig deep and provide not only knowledge, but actionable advice to help you get from where you are to where you want to be. Come join us and find the way to your dream life. Welcome back to the Wayfinder Show. We got a very special guest here today. Uh, recently, you know, the holidays just passed and I got to go to a lot of holiday events. And I went to one dinner one time here in Denver, Colorado, and met a really interesting gentleman there who uh, immediately, the more I talked to him, I'm like, this guy's a badass. We need to have him on the Wayfinder Show. So I asked him and we went back and forth a few times. We were finally able to get him on. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome uh, Joe Larkin. Uh, Joe, how you doing today? Unbelievable. Uh, that's <laughs> the, use, the word I use all the time because it could be unbelievably good or unbelievably bad, something <laughs> that you should consider using and say it with a smile. But uh, thanks for having me. Truly appreciate being here today. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. I really appreciate having you. And I know our listeners are going to appreciate learning from you as well. So why don't we just start a little bit with background, you know, what, what what's your origin story? Uh, I did, you know, look up online and, and saw, you know, you've been involved in real estate for a long time. Uh, maybe, you know, we can start there or, or before that, if you'd like. Where, where'd you like to? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so my background, uh, growing up without money and uh, I really had the desire, uh, deep down desire to become successful. And uh, at, at the age of 18, uh, I was going to uh, an engineering school in upstate New York, uh, Rensselaer Polytech Institute, RPI, for yeah. electrical engineering. And I, I completely hated it. And uh, I just, you know, I, in high school, you know, they're like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. So I took a test. And I'm really good in math and mechanics. And, you know, I got kind of a high IQ. And they're like, you should become an engineer. Okay, fine. I become an engineer. Uh, went to RPI. spent most of my time in a rat scholar drinking beer, eating pizza, and reading every single book on how to get rich buying real estate. And I read every book. And back then, you know, it goes in cycles. You know, there were a lot of books on the bookshelf. I read just about every single one of them. And at the age of 18, I bought my first house with uh, no money down. It was a two-family. Wow. Uh, it was uh, located uh, in a so-so neighborhood. It was a declining neighborhood, but, you know, I got a piece of the rock, so I was excited about that. And I actually walked out of the closing with enough money to buy the house across the street. Wow. I'm like, I'm like, this real estate is pretty easy, you know? <laughs> and, and one thing I've learned, you know, right place, right time, and real estate goes into a cycle, continuously in a cycle, 
And there will be times when, you know, it's just real estate just unbelievable to make money. And then things change. Uh, what happened was is that a word got into my vocabulary called recession. Mm. And a recession was starting. Needless to say, that really kind of caused some problems with my business plan. I sold all my real estate. I went back to school uh, to major in finance. And uh, uh, I also thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So I convinced this rather large law firm to hire me as a law clerk. I worked as a law clerk for about a year and a half. I did medical malpractice negligence. Um, I've done, I did everything up to trial. So I was able, you know, they, they let me kind of do what I want up to where I wasn't practicing law. And, and after about a year and a half of that, I decided that I didn't want to be a lawyer. It was really bad law, to be honest with you, because we were just ambulance chasers. Uh, I went, I spent most of my time in the medical library, you know, learning what hematoma and, you know, all these fancy words were. Um, I did get to do some PI work, and so I would track down people. You know, my job was to find out through layers and layers of corporations uh, who uh, the owners, the true owners were, you know, of of real property that we're suing. Uh, And so uh, I decided that I didn't want that. I ended up going back to school. Uh, Eventually, uh, I got a degree at the University of Denver. I have a master's degree in real estate. Uh, hmm. But uh, that being said, in between there and then, uh, I focused on my CCIM designation. And uh, to me, that was probably one of the best educators uh, to understand really if a deal made financial sense or not. Uh, and uh, eventually, I became a CCM instructor, won the Instructor Year Award three times, uh, traveled around the world. And uh, the other day, we're figuring out that uh, I must have uh, taught probably about 10,000 10,000 students or more over my career around the world. Uh, and uh, CSM classes at that time were five days, four days long. And that equates to about 60,000 day-long cl- classes I taught. And wow. uh, I really enjoyed it, a lot of fun. Uh, I taught at NYU. They hired me. I go once a year, did a crash course. Uh, also, uh, adjunct at the University of Denver, my alma mater. And uh, before COVID, you know, I was teaching there. And that, that's a lot of fun to do that. So uh, real business was great. I started a business uh, in a real estate brokerage company in Albany, New York. We became the number one brokerage company until a major competitor came in. We had seven agents. They had 50. And so dollar volume wise, uh, they were became number one. But we were actually number one because all of my agents, I made sure that they made a lot of money. And that was one of the things. And w- when we worked hard, play hard. I used to take my uh, agents uh, up to uh, once or twice a year to Montreal. Uh, we would actually rent uh, the top floor of a very nice hotel up there for the weekend. They bring their spouse uh, and uh, we would uh, go to a lot of restaurants, have a lot of fun uh, you know, as, a, as a group. So I had a lot of fun doing that. The only requirement was that um, on the way back across the border, uh, they had to buy me two bottles of Russian vodka. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, Monday morning, there's 14 bottles of Russian vodka uh, on my desk. And, uh, you know, I used to smoke cigars and drink, you know, vodka on my back deck in uh, in a, a small city called Saratoga Springs, New York. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a great it's a horse racing town. Yeah, it's a nice uh, town. You know, and so, uh, you know, I've been involved with syndications. I made sure everyone in my company became a CCIM. I made sure everyone in my company 
uh, would partner uh, in buying deals. And it's kind of interesting seeing a broker uh, when they're when they are actually are buying a deal from themselves, how they start analyzing a property compared to when they're bringing a property to market for clients. So it's kind of kind of fun to see that. And you know, our our yields on a lot of our investments, some creative deal making we used to do, our yields are anywhere from 100 to 500 percent IRRs. And uh, just kind of creative ways of looking at real estate uh, and having fun with the knowledge that we learn through CSAM training. Wow. That's exciting. So you, you got started right away in the commercial side. I mean, outside of when you first, you know, when you were 18, right? When, to be with honest with you, uh, it's kind of funny. I, I, you know, there was this uh, local small real estate company called Jack Frost Realty. And, um, it, it, you know, I kind of went there and I got my license and I, I did one open house. I just said, hey, you know, um, they didn't want to buy the house. The, the buyers came in because the bathroom was the wrong color. I just said, well, what color do you want it? I got paint in my trunk. I got three different colors. I'll paint it now if you buy it. Uh, at that <laughs> point, I realized residential is not for me. Right. You know, I'm a bottom line kind of numbers person, uh, and, uh, and it takes a special talent. We, I would actually hire residential agents to sell my homes. But yeah. uh, it's not my thing. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so, you know, I did a, one open house in my entire life and realized that that's not for me. Yeah. Well, that's good that you learned so early on, right? Because uh, that's usually a point of entry for a lot of us. I know it was for me, and I've been transitioning, and, and it's been difficult. What? So, so you you transitioned right away, which was great, and and that allowed you to have a long career there in it, and teaching in CCIM as well. What? What were? Uh, it, it also you you took you you focused on different asset classes, and you also took some big jumps uh, from you know some small stuff right right up to working with the family offices and everything. Am I right? Yeah. I, I mean, all the education I have and experience uh, really drives to the point where, you know, I got to the, I, I don't really want to sell a four unit and my core competencies, you know, are very, very strong and tying in the CSAM education, tying in what I've learned at the University of Denver. Uh, and that allowed me to go to higher levels in clientele. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I have one, I'll give you an example. I have one uh, long time family office out of Tucson, Arizona, that I continuously do fee-based work with. And they have a large portfolio and I kind of advise them on what to do and what not to do with their real estate. So it's not only a commission basis, but also uh, it is a, 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 an advisory capacity. And a lot, I hear a lot of brokers try to do that. And I would just caution them because... Uh, there's a lot to advising somebody, uh, advising a family office in particular. You know, so my target market, uh, I, I look for properties for publicly traded companies, uh, you know, private companies, and I work with them. Family offices are always big. Uh, there's a lot of drama, drama uh, with family offices sometimes. Yeah. Uh, no, mostly all the time, not sometimes. But uh, you know, that being said, you know, and I've seen a family office uh, in, in New York I work with. And um, it was a tech, third generation textile manufacturing company, and they were going out of business. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I'm dealing with second generation and third generation folks, and the conflicts are just phenomenal. But, um, but you know, I did my job what I had to do, uh, and uh, sometimes it's a lot of fun, sometimes not, uh, and seeing things that go down. But, you know, 
markets change, business change, and you have to adapt and change to those markets. And yeah. that's what I do. So you never, did you ever work for one of the big outfits like, you know, like a, a CBRE, JLL, one of those types, or did you go independent right away? I went, I went independent right away. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so with that in mind, I, I asked, uh, that's what I thought. And, and I think for a lot of us who've gone that path, it becomes, um, there's certain like, like, you know, it's not as easy to break into working with family offices, or at least we think so. Maybe that's a limiting belief for us, but you might not have had that, you know, working with private corporations and such. If, uh, you know, cause oftentimes we get the access and the resume to, uh, work with these types of companies after working for such, you know, big, uh, companies with great reputations like, like JLL and CBRE. Although we all know that we're just as good as, if not better, right? But I, I think, I think, uh, yeah, they are better. Um, but you know, the the thing is, is that the big dog can sit wherever it wants, and uh, right. the reputation that's out there. Even though I believe I add more value, and so you really have to to really sell, sell yourself, demonstrate through sales aids that I, I created. I've got a number. Like right now, I'm a, I'm a pretty big proponent on the sale leaseback transaction. Being a CSM instructor actually has helped me dramatically because I can deal on any level with any business, any person within that company. And I can deal with you know the, the, the accounting department. I can deal with the treasurer. I can deal with the president. I can deal with them all. I, I kind of have those core competencies. Sure. And I've honed those over the years. So, and I would say that uh, it is possible as long as uh, you bring value, credibility, experience to the table. Uh, and uh, I did it, you know, and, but uh, I had a lot of self-belief. I knew I can do it, and uh, I got the education to do it, uh, and I applied the education in real world and provide real world experience to my clients, and that's really what they want. If you think about any client you go after, the first thing is that uh, they want you to have the market knowledge. Uh, they want you to have experience, and they want you to be able to bring the deal across the finish line. And that's really how I look at it. So you look at uh, what 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 does the potential client want? You know, obviously market knowledge because the real estate industry, especially commercial, is inefficient. There's not a large mm-hmm. uh, sample population to really quantify exactly what's going to happen. So understanding how the market dynamic works, you know, how sub-market works, how smaller su- uh, sub-groups of the sub-market works, uh, is really, really important. You know, I gave an example in a presentation I did not too long ago. There was a street in Saratoga Springs on the on the east side. There's more walkable traffic than the west side. And Saratoga Springs, you know, really is a, a city where a lot of folks visit. I mean, 60 to 100,000 people will venture there during track season, you know, a, a day. And uh, so there's a lot of walk-by, you know, traffic for the stores. And it had to do with the sunshine, you know, sunshine more on one side than the other, but also had to do with traffic lights and being able to access, you know, that's a small little piece of it. It gets much bigger when it comes to looking at the dynamics of a sub-market in uh, in Denver, Colorado. Mm -hmm. So, you know, understanding that uh, becomes good. Another thing that I did, and I'm a general certified appraiser. But I very rarely go out and do appraisal work. Uh, I used to do appraisal work during bad economic times because they wanted the real number. Uh, and I used to advise banks on you know, portfolios that they had that 
uh, our, our toxic acids are going not performing acid marketplace. And um, I used to help them out on what to do strategy strategy wise uh, and caution them in a few things. There was a lot of non-conforming legal, legal non-conforming uses that were getting ready to expire that I just said dump the property right away uh, because you don't want to be in that position of losing the right to, to do what's being done there even though it's vacant. But long and short, you know, I found that bringing in SAOR, bringing in the Appraisal Institute, I did every single class up uh, up to getting my MAI designation. Uh, also, I was involved with Cornet and Cornet Corporate Real Estate folks, a great organization to be involved in. And so you know, the market's really divided into two major components. The first side is the investor side and the other side is the occupier side. So you first define what side do you want to work in? Do you want to work on the occupier side or do you want to you know, do the investor side? Fortunately for me, during my career, I've done both sides. And okay. uh, because you need to understand supply and demand to make a sound decision. And uh, that's what I found. But, uh, you know, that being said, bringing all these education, professional educations together uh, will guarantee, will help you get those deals and get those clients. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what I found. So is that what you were doing to get the clients going and joining these professional organizations? That would give you access to the networks and and such? Oh, and the, then... the, the networks are great, absolutely. You know, but the education – you know, bring, being able to, you know, look at a deal from many different ways. I call sure. it rom- romancing the stone. A jeweler will look at a diamond and romance it, meaning in their hand, look at all different uh, aspects of it. You get to do the exact same thing. Real estate, commercial investment real estate is not linear. It's exponential. Sure. So, well, there's the education, right, which is, uh, you know, I, I relate that to like having the tools, right? But then you still got to get the client to go do the work for it, right? So that's correct. Was that coming from the professional organizations at first? Because I mean, you you said you started off as uh, you know a, a kid with not too much money and went off and kind of made or self made. So you you didn't you know start off with these contacts, right? Well, it's it's called dialing and smiling, and uh, yeah. you got to be you know even even today I still you know dial for dollars. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I would just suggest that you have to get over that. If that bothers you, you know, maybe this is not the profession to be in because you're doing, you know, really promotional. You're doing sales yeah. uh, and to get in the, de- get in the door. But uh, no, I, I, I basically put together marketing campaigns uh, that, well, a couple things. Back in Albany, New York, uh, I was out with a broker one time, a friend of mine. We're really good friends. And we went to this bar restaurant mm-hmm. and he wanted to introduce me to um, one of his clients. And he, and he did. And he's like, you're the postcard guy. I would send out a thousand <laughs> postcards a month. Yeah. Okay, a thousand postcards. A month. He goes, I, you know, I, and he goes, I love your postcards. And, you know, we hired this marketing genius, uh, you know, that actually come, came up with all kinds of creative different uh, pieces to, to email out letters, pieces, things like that. But, you know, once I get in the door and get in front of them, you know, I'm pretty confident uh, mm-hmm. because of my background, my education, my experience. And that's really what counts. You know, there's a lot of uh, people out there that are brokers that, you know, don't have that. And they kind of BS their way. And, you know, when you get up the corporate ladder, you know, they can smell that a mile away. So you really have to have that, that experience. Case studies. We used to put together case studies that we did uh, in doing deals. Um, mm-hmm. 
I even, I even at one time, I, uh, I remember I would hire uh, juniors from uh, the local colleges to come in uh, for the summer and to intern in real estate. And, you know, the first time I did it, I had one person that, that didn't work out for me because they're always clinging on. They want to, you know, they have to be with them all the time. I then hired two the next year and they would collaborate to get out of work. Uh, so then I hired three and that worked the best. And, uh, you know, we paid them at the time a, a very good, you know, weekly or uh, hourly pay. And, um, and then uh, one year I hired four and the first week I fired one in front of all of them, scared the crap out of them. Needless to say, they were dialing for dollars for us. They're marketing, they're marketing students. And uh, all I remember is that uh, this one young gentleman takes the phone, lifts it above his head in the air, and says, I got one. And <laughs> I handed it off to our, our apartment broker, Jay Vero. Great broker, great guy. I love Jay to death. And uh, he took, that, he took it, that lead, went, got the listing. It was a 99-unit apartment building. Uh, wow. We had it listed. And one of the things that set us from apart from everyone, which now everyone has, is we had a database 20 years ago, 25 years ago, a database of over 10,000 prospects. And we huh. would send that, send that out. And we sold that property uh, within 48 hours. Wow. And, you know, it was priced right, done right. And we have the right team, you know, involved in it. You know, so setting up processes is probably the mm -hmm. most important thing that every person uh, in this business has to do setting up process, you know, and, and I do teach a broker development course and I call it the broker circle and the process is going through from business development to getting a contract, you know, and what are the checklists involved in the 12 steps in, in the broker uh, business cycle or circle. And so, um, we, I've always been a process person and I learned that early on from a book I read and it said, basically, I can't remember the book off offhand right now, but the first chapter said, basically, if you left your job to become your own boss, so you made a mistake, go back. <laughs> your job now as an entrepreneur is to hire human resources, harness the human resources and get them to make you money. And I always mm. remember that. And that's what I did. And, uh, you know, we had seven brokers that were top producers. We had two and a half employees. I cross trained them. We had ISO 9002 uh, books. In a, so so we, if we lost our, our front admin person, there was a book that allowed you to just open it up and know what to do when she sign, or he signs, up, signs in to uh, be the admin, shows up at 830 in the morning. And that comes from the McDonald's process. They, they teach their McDonald's managers uh, to be a manager. And, and what I've been told is that it's a, it's a process. Mm -hmm. uh, you throw the burger on, you push the button, the bell rings, you flip it, the bell rings again, put the toast in, the bell rings again, you got yourself a cooked burger. I use that same approach in developing processes for uh, my brokerage company. Processes are everything. Yeah, that's awesome. And, I... and, and I'll tell you, in your sales pitch, most, <laughs> most brokers kind of wing it. You know, you really explain your process and explain the process of, of, of listing a property and explain that process. And people really, 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 really appreciate that you have a process and, and you have a, we also report monthly to our clients. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting. When I first got into the business, I was one of those who thought, you know, I could talk my way into getting any listing or any sale. And 
it worked a little bit, but not enough. But as I've moved up in the world and have more sophisticated, sophisticated clients is that that just doesn't work at all. Like you have to have a process, you know, if they don't see, I mean, now I just pull out my checklist and go through it and they see that and they really respect that. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's, you have to have that, you know, so education, yeah. we talked about professional designations are, are big. Um, if you get a, yourself a master's degree in real estate, bigger, Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the key thing is the experience and market knowledge. And, uh, what I've done is I've actually created, I call them one page sale, sales aids. So if I'm going there and, and let me recommend to everyone, you know, if you're in this business, there's a book called spin selling oh, yeah. uh, that changed my thought process on how I ask questions when I am interviewing a potential client. Because I interview, I may not, you know, I may not want to work with them. You know, I just, they don't click. Right. And um, uh, so one of the things that, you know, I, I really like to do is make sure that I'm comfortable with what they want to do. I'm comfortable with my outputs that they are, what they're looking for. And because uh, I always want to create a scope <clears throat> of work uh, because I don't want them coming back saying, you said you're going to do this, this, and this. And I'm like, no, here's the scope of work. I wrote it down. I emailed it to you. You confirmed this is the scope what I'm going to do. That's outside my scope of work. And so you really want to have that uh, really memorialized in some sort of document, email, what have you. And um, so that's what I'd recommend strongly, you know, is just deciding if you really want to work it. And what I used to train my agents to do before you take a listing, I would say to them, number one, uh, what is the market value today? Okay. Number two, will they price it at market value? You know that you you recommend, and if they're like twenty percent above it, you know, drop it. Uh, number three, who's going to buy it, and where are they? And so, if you don't know that, why are you taking a listing? You know, you should be able to know. You know, you've got some sort of database or some sort of relationship with people. And Jay Vero, I mentioned his name. Sorry about it, Jay, but you know, he brought in. He, he's my apartment guy, and. He, I probably shouldn't say it that way, but, you know, he just, you know, he ran a REIT in New York. He had in charge of over 6,000 apartments he managed for this REIT. He knows apartments like his backhand. He is the best in the business, if you ask me. And, you know, I just said to him, he brought in this one listing that was kind of like a banquet house. And I'm like, what the hell are you going to do with that? Mm. Who's going to buy it? Well, you know, he's going to give me more listings. I go, that just caught, you know, my philosophy is like fishing, catch and release, get rid of it. You know, where a lot of brokerage companies, the the value of a brokerage company is how many signs they have up and how many agents they have. That's the value of a brokerage company. I'm not that way. I want to make money. So I want you to make money. <laughs> yeah. And if you're taking on these, these dogs, you know, give it to somebody else. You know, refer it out, you know. Just, mm-hmm. You know, our focus, and, and there's a book out there called Laser Focus. You got to be laser focused on what you do and be the best. Be the best at that, whatever it is you do. And mm-hmm. he did student housing, and he was the best out there. He did apartments. He is the best out there. So, you know, I haven't seen Jay in a while, but uh, he was he, he did a great job. And I could talk about other folks in my company uh, that we embrace the same philosophies. And um, laser focus is one of them. Yeah, and with that in mind, I think it's important for people understand like, you know, what might be a dog to us 
may not be a dog to somebody else, right? If we stay laser focused in one area, we become such market segment experts, right? That we, we, there, you, right in, in that particular one, that anything that falls into that box is not going to be a dog for us, right? We can get it sold. We can, we can help the clients, right? Um, Maybe. I, I don't know. Yeah. You know I, I just said, how many, how many are there on the markets for sale? None. Right. And uh, how many are there in the market? Your target market would be, you know, folks that own them, you know, mm-hmm. maybe 20, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you know it, it, it's, you know, it, it's called probability of brokering. You need to focus in on, if you look at uh, the, 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 the office market space, and I, I segment the office market here in Denver by co-stars sub-market, why reinvent the wheel. In Albany, New York, I created my own sub-markets 15 years, 20 years ago. All right, so mm-hmm. we just, just use that. And so then you break it down to different properties, you know, office types, A, B, and C, obviously. Square footage-wise, you know, I focus on 20,000 square feet or greater is my target market. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and a lot of other things I look at, how many total square feet are there out there and what's the probability of getting that listing and bringing it to market and selling it? And what happens is this. If you focus in with Jay, he just did apartments. That's all he did. He every day, every every minute of the day, he was actually focusing in on apartments and not a banquet facility. Just focus, focus, focus. That's my philosophy. And you can you know approach it any way you want, but um, you know. And and let me just say this: when I first started, I took every listing possible. Trust me. Right. And I I learned by mistakes. And uh, you can't you can't be doing office apartments retail. You can't be doing all of them on a high level, right? And what what may happen is that if you go in, you're trying to get into the family office, you know, uh, family trust kind of or groups and organizations. And uh, what may may happen is that um, they may not they may not be doing office or apartments. They may be doing something else, and therefore you may not be qualified to represent them in the marketplace. Right. Another bit is once you, as you moved up and you did bigger deals, and I, I know you've you've done some very very big deals, and it, that also a lot of those also take more time, right? Like when you start off, you're used to these little deals that close in thirty, sixty days, and that's great. But you know, to to is it is it am I right? I don't, I don't know that. I I don't know that to be true, but I guess okay. my response is it could, uh, obviously, you know, but what happens, you get into larger deals, the, the players tend to be more sophisticated. Right. Um, the process is the same, sure. you know, uh, you know, I've dealt with general electric and, uh, it, it, well, they're in Connecticut, but in Schenectady, in New York, they have a, the headquarters and, um, the problem with large multi-conglomerate corporations like that, Decision makers could be a group of people somewhere else in Atlanta, let's say. I don't know. And so unless I'm toe-to-toe, face-to-face with decision makers, it's very hard to get that done to understand what they want to do. Right. Uh, and so you know, a, a suggestion is always try to be with the family offices. At least you're meeting with the folks that are making the decisions, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's the important thing. Um, but um, I, 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 it may take a little bit longer, but, you know, uh, we – I remember I was uh, in a CSAM class in um, North Carolina, and there was a gentleman in the class, and um, he was in Memphis, Tennessee. He was a broker, 
And he called me up and, you know, he said, hey, Jojo, you know, that's my Southern name. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I did a lot of business in North Carolina, so they may be an honorary North Carolinian. Uh, however, they said, we got to change your name, Joe. Your name now is Jojo. So my Southern <laughs> name is Jojo. And that's why I have JojoLarkin.com. JojoLarkin.com is my, my domain. Okay. Uh, and, and he calls me up and he says, you know, look, I, I, you know, um, and he worked for a national company. You know, I just, you know, for the heck of I'm calling you up because I'm looking for 150,000 square feet. And um, do you know of anything, you know, and he, I know he's been to all the nationals. He's been to all the list services. He's done his work. But I found the property. The owner actually had 250,000 square foot buildings and he was renting them out 50,000 foot. Okay, so three tenants in each one of them. So he had one building with two tenants, another building with one tenant. So he didn't have 150,000 square feet. So I called that owner up and said, look, what's the possibility of moving that tenant over to the other building and getting this national tenant, national credit tenant, to take the entire building of 150,000 feet? Hmm. That's the creativity, and that's the thought process of being exponential. We did the deal, okay? Nice. Uh, and um, it was a really big deal, big, huge commission check for, for both of us. But it was something that was not on the market. And off-market deals tend to be probably some of the biggest pay. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I, I believe that the I, I work within what's called the 595 model, where 5% of the people, 5% of the properties are in and on the market. 95% are not. Right. You want to be successful, you have to work the 95% of the market. Yeah. Same thing holds true. I have a 60-40 rule where 60% of your time you should be doing business development and 40% of your time you should be doing transaction management. Sometimes brokers get so wrapped up in the transactions and closing the deal that they forget about feeding the pipeline. And uh, so those are some rules that I've used over the years that seem to work. Uh, and it may be 10, 90, I don't know. Uh, but uh, off-market deals are really where a lot of things take place. Yeah, I get it. The, you know, I find myself doing more and more of those now. Uh, so I, I see that. And um, it, it's definitely more lucrative as well. And it's more fun, right? Like I'm enjoying the hunt, you know. Um, well, one thing I learned early on is that uh, you, you have to have control. If you can't control the deal and you have to rely on other stakeholders involved, there's a very good chance the deal is not going to happen. You know, So a lot of times I just ask the other broker to step aside. I'll make sure that broker gets the commission check and just let me do the deal. Yeah. And there's always someone that kind of gets involved in, you know, egos are involved, you know, check your yeah. ego at the door, you know, and uh, I can close the deal. I know how, how to make things work. I know how to be creative in making things work. Uh, and, um, you know, that being said, you know, it, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm going after banks uh, and trying to convince banks to do sale leasebacks. And they may not want to do the, you know, sale leaseback for several reasons, so. Um, in particular, they get to depreciate the improvements. And I said, okay, let's just do, uh, uh, let's just take the loaf of bread and cut it in half. Let's just sell the land and do a land lease. You can own the building and, and depreciate it. And also, uh, the land now, you're able to deduct the rent payment as a deduction because you can't depreciate land. You know, just kind of different things you can come up with, you know, in the conversation that may move that person over to doing a transaction with you. Yeah. 
So talk about that a little bit. You you're seeing you mentioned before we started recording that you you're doing a lot more of the sale leasebacks right now. Um, yeah. Can you describe exactly what that is and why you're you're seeing that as a as a growing trend? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, there, there's there's a lot of loans that uh, that are on you know some some decent sized buildings that are going to be called in the next uh, two to four years. Yeah. Uh, and so what happens is that the sale leaseback transaction is really a financing tra- transaction. And so money is kind of dried up for financing. And so we look at companies uh, that occupy single tenant companies that occupy the entire building. Uh, they sell their building to an investor and simultaneously uh, sign a long-term lease. And so uh, what's happening is that this is a great strategy for certain companies that may have a, a loan coming due in the near future, uh, or they can't get any financing, um, you know, in the marketplace. Uh, and a cool, a couple of cool things about sale leaseback. It's really a hundred percent financing deal, uh, and uh, you get all your money and you get the equity. But for a lot of companies, it's a financial statement issue. So what happens is that on the balance sheet, you may have this loan as a liability, a long-term liability, and real estate is a long-term asset. So mm-hmm. if you sell your property to sell lease back, if a company does that, and, and then what happens is that they have a long-term lease. So now all of a sudden, they get a whole bunch of cash on their balance sheet as a short-term asset. The, uh, their long-term asset is removed, obviously, and their long-term debt is removed. So it actually could improve the balance sheet of the company, and that could be something of importance to a lot of mid-sized companies. Uh, their balance sheet is really important to them, yeah. um, and and so that's one strategy. You know, another strategy is just capitalizing on the increase in value. If you, uh, I'll tell you a little secret to do is we go into CoStar and look for industrial properties that single-tenant manufacturers uh, bought in 2009. Uh, that was the bottom of the market, so they they may have a ton of equity. Uh, in their real estate, and it's a good time to cash out. You know, you don't have to, the secret is you don't have to own real estate as a business. You just need to control the real estate. Right. And there's this misconception that you have to own it. Uh, that's not true whatsoever. Yeah, that's great. So it's, a, it's a financing mechanism Yeah. Uh, that uh, just another strategy, you know, that we, we implement um, and we do lease versus own. Another one that I'm rolling out this year is lease versus purchase. Uh, I think I'm going to just say this. I've been around for a while. This is probably one of the best times to get into real estate. This is one of the best times to open up a business. I just kind of look at the, the, the horizon in the long run, and I'm seeing that there's just going to be tons of opportunity for many reasons. You know, there's a huge population of younger folks out there that are going to be around for a while. And I kind of equate it back to when the baby boomers were kind of young coming through, what happened to the economy? Well, we got the millennials, that's happening right now. Uh, I'll tell you, it's a great time to get into real estate. And what I'm seeing is that a lot of folks that have been brokers for a long time are fat, dumb, and happy, uh, and they're exiting out. They're like, you know, because they didn't have to be creative. You know, they'd show up at 10, leave a four, and still make a lot of money because the real estate market is inefficient. There's inefficient markets you can make a lot of money. So right. I would just say that this is a great time to be in real estate. Yeah. 
You know, I, I haven't been this excited about real estate since I got in, really. Uh, just last week, I was at a conference in Vegas, you know, the NCE meeting. That was my first time attending. And I was blown away by all the opportunities in that room. And a lot of them are just because there's a, a bunch of folks who just don't want to work the deals, you know. And so I came out of there with a bunch of deals. And, and I was yeah. like, wow, this is exciting. <laughs> it, all it, I got to do is work. I've been doing that forever. So, Well, if you, know. you look back, uh, you know, there's capital on the sidelines. You yeah. know, what, what happened in previous uh, you know, downturns, there was no capital you know, I mean, even you go back into the you know, late 90s, early 2000s, you know, recessions took place and uh, there was just no money to be had. I mean, there's mm -hmm. money out there. and But now I think people have to wake up and realize that it's going to cost you a lot more to borrow than mm -hmm. what it did during COVID. And right. um, that's just the fact of life. You missed, the, you missed it. But also this gives a chance for the sale leaseback transaction. But yeah. lease versus purchase, I think, is going to be a big one. And I'm advocating that, you know, companies 5,000 square feet or greater take, you know, I do, I do lease versus purchase analysis on an after income tax basis. And 90% mm -hmm. of the time it indicates that they should buy the real estate. A couple of big huh. issues, deployment of capital, do they have it? Uh, number two would be growth issues. Can you grow into it? Uh, I did a deal uh, where we did, I did a build a suit for 20,000 square feet office building. And I, I went around the neighborhood, you know, all the office buildings banged on doors. And so how come you don't own your own real estate? You know, they're like, oh, I don't know. And uh, it's the reason why is because their CPA tells them not to. And their mm -hmm. CPA is looking strictly and solely from gap accounting. From mm -hmm. gap accounting, probably you shouldn't. But from after-tax analysis, you definitely should be looking at buying your real estate. And so we put together a number of deals. One in particular, uh, we had a company that was growing pretty big. Uh, we built them a 20,000-foot office building. They occupied half of it. We then found a tenant to occupy the other half and pay rent, offsetting the cost of occupancy. They eventually grew into the entire building. You wow. know, I mean, so that's a whole other strategy to think about and what you can do. And so we put the pencil down, and, and I, I got to leave you with one more example. I had a friend of mine. Uh, his name was John, John and that brothers, and they were going to take over their father's business. His father built the largest copier company in New England, the mm. largest copier company in New England. And for the last 25 years, he rented his space. And John came to me and said, you need to convince dad that he should be buying a building. Well, he wants dad's signature before he retires. That's really what he wanted. I get it. <laughs> so I did a lease for his own analysis, and, uh, and he submitted it to – uh, their CPA. And so I, I showed up to the office once and um, John walked in John, the dad's office and, you know, John said, Hey dad, what's the story on uh, buying a building? And said, hold on. And so um, the dad was a, just like me, you know, kind of short, you know, and a typical New Yorker. And uh, he, he pushed speed dial number one. I always remember this. It, it didn't go to his wife. It went to the accountant speed dial, pushed speed and he's on speaker system. You know, and all of a sudden the CPA, so, you know, the guy, the dad's name was Walt. And, you know, hey, Walt, how you doing is what I heard on the speaker. And um, he started talking about golf. He goes, I don't want to talk about golf because you bill me per minute. Okay. Should I buy a building? Yes or no. And I always remember the accountant saying he stumbled for words for a minute and said, I never looked at it this way on an after tax cost of occupancy. I've always used gap accounting. And this all indicates you should do it. Mm. And we convinced the gatekeeper of the money to do the deal. Nice.
So that's the creativity you have to get involved with to to do some of these deals. And I've replicated those a lot. Uh, I've actually optioned property. You know, I, I have my agents you know, option uh, land, and, and we would add entitlements to it during the option period. We'd never take title. Uh, we would sell the option to a developer and walk away with 500% yields on our money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, there's so many things you could do. But it's being around creative people, being in that creative environment uh, to do things like that. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you, Joe. I that You've left me with a, a lot to think about for sure, and I'm sure our, our listeners as well. It's pretty impressive all the things you've gotten done and, and what you've learned along the way. What, uh, With that in mind, I'd like to jump into our Wayfinder 4, if you don't mind. Go ahead. What are they? Yeah. So what uh, – First one's a, what is a hack that you use? Uh, and that um, could be routine or an app or, you know. I would not recommend any one, but I'll just say that if you don't have a CRM that functionally works for you, uh, you're lost. And, um, you know, I'm using one call. I might as well say I'm using a rethink right now. And yeah. I spent, spend the extra money to have them change it every time I want to change. It's got to be particular for my process. So okay. if you get a, a CRM, make sure you get one, spend the extra money and get it made to do a lot of them. You can't adjust things, but this one you can. So I would recommend a CRM. Excellent. How about a favorite? Could be a book, a show, an activity, whatever. Favorite. Okay. Um, Squawk. I watch, I watch Squawk Box every morning. It's on okay. at 6 a.m. Eastern time. Yeah. And I record it. Okay. So oh, uh, I'm going to tell you that key, that kind of keeps my ear to the ground when it comes to capital. And that's okay. a really great program that I watch. And when you record it, you can actually fast forward and bypass the commercials. Uh, they have a lot of great uh, speakers on there. Uh, we're still in January, but they were recently in Davos, Switzerland, where all yeah. of the big – uh, C, uh, CEO show up, you know, government officials show up and listening to, you know, those folks talk about what's happening in business and where things are changing. Uh, one thing surprising on that was, um, I think it was a president of Venezuela was um, Argentina, sure. Argentina, Argentina. Yeah, Argentina. Yeah. I mean, I, Argentina. Yeah. yeah. You, so, and, and he basically just said, you know, he's concerned about Western countries mm-hmm. you know, turning into socialists because socialism is basically poverty. And I thought about that for a while and I'm like, you know, he's right, you know, and we're heading down socialism uh, and it has to do with certain political powers believe that the average person cannot take care of themselves. So the government has to take care of it for them. Um, So anyway, that was just interesting. And, and then you you heard about uh, uh, a few other bankers that got on there and talked about stuff, but anyway. Yeah. I I watched uh, a few of the the speeches out what he said. James, uh, his economic forecast. Yeah, well, the yeah, that yeah. And, and then you know the, the politics and everything else, and right. Uh, I, I just he, he calls it the way it is, and I love that. Yeah, well, that's why he's probably one of the best bankers of our generation, right? Um, all right, what is something you would tell your younger self, Joe? My younger self or younger folks? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you got to work twenty four seven. You got to be available. Uh, you got to have an open mind about things, uh, think things through. I remember growing up, I always uh, heard, you know, believe nothing of what you hear and half of what you see. Uh, and critical thinking is probably the most important thing that any young person 
should ascertain and being able to be a critical thinker uh, and questioning, question everything, you know, I mean, don't watch TV. I mean, people are watching TV and, you know, it's like, are you serious? You know, I mean, you know, people are getting all bent out of shape and believe everything they see on, on television. You know, I read the Wall Street Journal, you know, watch Squawk Box mm-hmm. and all the financial channels. I record them. Um, and, and long and short of it is, is that understand the marketplace. But more importantly, you know, family first. You know, I, I would say that family comes before everything. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm a grandfather. I got five grandchildren. Congratulations. Uh, they all live within a block. Uh, and uh, every Friday night, I cook the grandkids uh, dinner. They come over to the house and have wow. dinner. You know, the oldest is six. Um, actually, not all five of them. My son just had twin girls. So they're 17 months, I think. Uh, no, they're not even that. No. Oh, birds. They're all they're turning a year. Okay, sorry. Uh, time flies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> you know? crazy. But the three of them come over, and, and uh, the cool thing is, is that uh, bought them a uh, one of those electric jeeps that they could drive. Huh. They can they drive around the block, and they have a blast yeah. with that. So, um, try to do a lot with the family. That's beautiful. Yeah, you're definitely blessed. So, last one, our new um, question on the wayfinder for what is a a limiting belief you've had, and how did you overcome it? Limiting belief is a hard one. I always try to be positive about everything. Um, And I'll be honest with you. I've been thinking about that since we started this. And I don't know if any limited belief I ever had, to be honest with you. Um, And let me share with you a couple things. Uh, I remember I was 16 years old. I had a checking account. And I remember going to the grocery store back then to get money. They didn't have ATMs. That's how old I am. But you go to the grocery store and they cash a check for you and get cash. And yeah. the woman behind the counter was older. You know, I was young. And she's like, you're not old enough to have a checking account. I go, yes, I am. And I do. Cash my check, please. Uh, just kind of the attitude, I think. Um, so, you know, it, there's a lot of things out there. You know, I remember uh, I bought my first house when I was 18 years old. And um, I went to get a loan. And I remember the, the woman that was taking my application. It was probably about 28. And she didn't have a house. And she's like, well, what did you, uh, how'd you get a house? Did uh, someone give it to you? And I go, no, I bought it. You know, you yeah. know, it's just, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of troubled trying to figure out a limiting belief. I mean, you know, there is no finish line, you know, as has been my philosophy. Uh, when I was in college, I ran and won class president. And uh, I remember after, after the next day going across the street in a park bench and I'm saying, okay, what's next? That's just kind of my attitude. Yeah. Well, I think that attitude, you know, that extreme self-confidence you've had is really what's helped you become successful as well, right? I mean, we need that to be successful. You know, if you, yeah. you yeah, can know I everything know. in the world, but if you don't have the confidence to portray it, then you're not going get, to get anywhere, right? Well, I, I got knocked, I, you know, I've got knocked off my perch many times and, yeah. uh, you know, you get back up and you do it again. And I remember I was working with someone on a deal somewhere and uh, they sent their CPA up from New York City. I was living in you know, upstate New York and um, this tall, thin, six foot three person, 60 years old, wearing circle glasses, CPA shows up, you know, and I'm, we're sitting in a restaurant. I'm like 32, you know, and I just think I'm hot shit. 
<laughs> and he called me a greenhorn. I had no idea what the hell greenhorn meant. I had to go look it up, you know, but, uh, you know, it means someone new, young, you know, kind of green to the, the industry. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, and so I just said to myself, I'm going to prove him wrong, you know, and that was my philosophy. That's great. So, Joe, if anybody, any of our listeners want to know, you know, reach out to you, maybe get some, uh, join into some of your coaching programs or, or just want to do business with you, how can they, how can they contact you? I'm sorry, JoJoLorkin.com is probably my, uh, the best uh, domain to reach me. I also have a, a domain, CREtraining.org, uh, where I have uh, classes that I do online. Uh, I do love to teach. I do uh, I do, I've actually started doing some mentoring, much, much to my chagrin, but, uh, you know, when I have my agents, I'm like, get off your ass and make a phone call. Okay. It's my philosophy. <laughs> you know, it's like people just think I waltzed in and everything works out. But, uh, Joe Larkin at ccim.net. It's a good email address. Joe Larkin, ccim, charlie, charlie, ice, net is a good email address. Uh, my, my number, uh, Denver, Colorado is seven two zero. Nine hundred twenty forty four seven two zero nine hundred twenty forty four. You can call me anytime. Uh, I may not answer, but you can call me. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you so much, JoJo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, gonna have to start using that one, especially if we ever go down south together. But uh, thank you very much for sharing all of your wisdom with us and. Uh, you know, this is, uh, I'm pumped, man. You got an energy about you that makes you also want to go take on the world and start implementing stuff. So I really, uh, well, I can there feel is that. No fit, there's no finish line. You know, you just got to get yeah. up and do it, you know. And, uh, you know, tenacity is probably one of the things that you really have to have. Uh, you're going to get knocked down, you know, on your butt many times. You know, it's just I keep on asking myself, you know, one more round, Rocky, one more round. That's all I need, you know. That's right. Well, thanks again, Joe. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks uh, for doing this. And hopefully this helps you out. Absolutely. I think you're going to help a lot of people out. Thank you. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed the Wayfinder Show. If you got value from this episode, please take a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. This will allow us to help more people find their way to live more authentic and exciting lives. We'll catch you on the next episode.